bow our heads. <clears throat> Dear Heavenly Father, thank you again for the privilege and the honor of gathering together as family this evening. Thank you for truth that continues to set us free, Father. Thank you for the word and the promise of sanctification. This is a promise that we received, whether we knew it or not, at salvation. Your promises are always real and they're absolute. And so we're looking forward to whatever you have in store for each one of us as individuals, as well as the ministry, as a community, as the body of Christ, the church. We are most grateful and thankful for that love that hung on a cross 2,000 years ago to make even a night like this one a reality. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. We are on part 35 of the Gospel, Salvation, and Sanctification fantastic series really dominates um, uh, the closing of last year, and as we kick off the new year, uh, we are midstream, uh, and he's really just going at it with us. Here's the big picture that he's been giving us up here on the board. We've been back to Romans 1. Remember, the ministry itself uh, started on, on Romans 1.1, or at Romans 1.1, and we ventured all the way back to Romans 1. Romans 1, 1 to 17 is really the glory of salvation in the spiritual life, 18 to 32, the tragedy of unbelief and spiritual death. So those are big picture items, and that's really what the Spirit wants us to look at. We read them in their entirety to really glean the big picture. There's a lot of specifics that we could stop and stare at in that uh, precious chapter uh, in the book of Romans, but that's not what he wanted. He wanted us to look at the big picture and remember uh, where he's been trying to take us the last few months. The key starter principle this past week has been accountability. So he started each class with the idea that God is sovereign. So when we think about God's sovereignty, we have to think of this particular principle. God's creatures are accountable to him, accountable to him. That is a universal fact. Whether or not his creatures agree or confess with him or not is not the issue. We looked at Psalm 1 for encouragement, James 4.12, and we compared that to 2 Samuel 24.12, where David was basically saying that I'd rather be judged by God anyways uh, because his integrity is perfect, his justice is always going to be fair and perfect. Uh, and that's what a humble creature thinks like when they understand the sovereignty of God. He is really the one that you want to be judged by because his creatures are never 100% fair. And so David knew that, and he says, I'd rather have the mercies of God, uh, even if it means uh, a certain kind of punishment. I'd rather have God's justice in my life. And so that's what a humble person thinks about when they think about God's sovereignty and being accountable to Him. So if we apply this fact to our current studies with respect to the gospel, uh, I'll give you this. The whole gospel, the first part of the good news, that's what gospel means, good news, is that we are held accountable to God, to a God of perfect integrity. That's a very good thing. That's good news to the person who's rightly related to God. And that is part of the whole gospel. A lot of people miss out on that. But the very first part of the good news is that we are held accountable to a God of perfect integrity, which means he has every right to sentence us without Christ to the lake of fire. As with any form of justice, the very best we can ever hope for is a fair judge. God's integrity guarantees us perfect justice always. That is very good news. And that's how you have to think about the sovereignty and the justice of God. He is our judge, and that is very good news because God's integrity is perfect, and therefore it guarantees us perfect justice every time, even if we're going to get stung. If it's discipline, then so be it. That's perfect discipline. Uh, so as with any form of justice, the very best we can ever hope for is a fair judge. God is perfect, therefore he is perfectly fair. 
from a different, equally encouraging, equally substantial angle. The Spirit gave us this as well. He has a right to judge us. He has a right to be our sovereign. Why? Because we've been redeemed. I mean, we've been purchased as believers. You have been purchased with a price. Your life is your Redeemer's. We looked at 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20. 1 Peter 1, 17-19. I'll give you 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 in the message. But the point is that you are redeemed and therefore you are His. You are His slave. You're always a slave, as Paul said in Romans 6. You're always a slave of one or the other. Unrighteousness or righteousness. 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 in the message says... Or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place, the place of the Holy Spirit? Don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? The physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole works. So, let people see God in and through your body. That's 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20 in the message. The point is that he owns all of you, every part of you, every facet of you. I even wrote that blog on the physicality of it. Think of it this way. God became a man to save you personally. So he has certain rights over those that he has paid the price to redeem. Amen? And that's the other point that the Spirit wants to get at. Whether or not you even see that technically isn't even the issue, but it certainly is something very encouraging and something very substantial, especially for we believers. God's sovereign over everyone, but that second point on redemption really hits home. So now, to relate this back to our primary course of study, namely sanctification... Up here on the board, we can conclude, if your life is His life, then it's His life to sanctify, not yours. That's the Spirit's angle into this, is saying, stay away from self-sanctification after positional sanctification. So, don't make an issue or a divide artificially between positional and experiential sanctification. Those terms aren't even in the Bible. I hope you know that positional and experiential, those terms are not in the Bible. That's what theologians, and I teach that way too, so that we can sort of, you know, digest the Word of God piecemeal so that we have digestible chunks. But the reality is sanctification is one reality for God. And so we can't artificially draw lines in the sand and say, well, thanks for positional sanctification, but experiential sanctification is something totally different. And I have to be involved in it somehow. As as if all of a sudden God's grace fell short after the cross. That's not the case at all. So if your life is His life, then it's His life to sanctify, not yours. And the Spirit's basically saying, don't fall into the trap after salvation. After He's done the greater work even. Don't fall into the trap of thinking that you have something to do with sanctifying yourself. The only thing, as we'll see in Scripture, as we've seen for a while now is you have the ability with your free will to obey. That's about what it comes down to. You have a free will to obey the commands of God. And when you obey His commands, He imparts faith, and with that faith you are sanctified, because faith is the channel through which grace flows abundantly into your lap. So it's His life to sanctify, not yours. Let me give you an analogy to drive this home. You get a new puppy. You really love this little gal. She's absolutely adorable, but as they say, she's a puppy, which means that you've got to spend a good amount of time training her so that the next 15 or so years spent together aren't riddled with issues. Your neighbor has like 10 dogs. And they are all wildly out of control. Never trained. Always barking, getting into the neighbor's trash, uh, making a mess. They poop on everyone else's lawns but their own. 
and they jump and scratch little toddlers and making them cry. They're just awful. So, your neighbor, the one who owns all of these dogs, comes over to you and says, I would like to train your new puppy. Well, what do you say? I mean, after you spit out your coffee and stop laughing in their face, of course. Well, how is that any different than when we say to the Lord God, our Creator, I'd like to sanctify myself? How's that any different? Truthfully, the only way it's different is that it's infinitely more insulting to God than your neighbor is to you. That's truth be told. (laughs) Go to Romans 9.20. But that's what we do when we try to self-sanctify. We as horrible, really weak, pathetic individuals set out and try to sanctify ourselves which is insulting to God, since He's the one who saved you in the first place. Romans 9.20 On the contrary, who are you, O man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, Why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for common use. In other words, he is the potter, you are the clay. You don't have the right to say, I'm going to sanctify myself the way I want to be sanctified. I'm going to build a life that I built for me. I'm going to be a self-made man. I'm going to be a self-made woman. I'm going to take it from here. God, thank you very much. I'll see you in heaven. Go spend your time, your precious time, on somebody else who needs it more than me. That's self sanctification. Obviously, that's the easy one to look at. But we all have a little bit of that in us. may not be much bravado like that, or as much bravado, where we're talking to God uh, in that way, but in our actions, in our thoughts, we may be thinking the same way. Like, God, I've got it. I've got this part. I don't need, I'm not going to pray for it. I'm not going to ask for it. I don't need any help in this area of my life. Well, That's pretty darn arrogant, isn't it? To say that I don't need God's grace in any part of my life. Let's get back to where we started in Romans 1. Romans 1.16. Go there. Romans 1.16. So the point on the board, again, the conclusion regarding that aspect of sanctification is that it's His life to sanctify us, not ours. And hopefully the puppy example will stick with you. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. At that point, we stepped back in our studies and asked, well, what is the big picture? If we're surveying Romans 1, which is so impregnated with so many doctrines and things you could study for years and years. If we're stepping back, what is the big picture then? What's God trying to reveal to us in our studies right now? Well, as a point of encouragement, it's this, for starters... A righteous man shall live by faith. I mean, his righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, from faith to faith, the righteousness that is from God. Victory in Jesus. How about that? The more of the big picture you, quote, see, the more free you will be. The more of the big picture you see, the more free you will be. We run the race freely knowing that victory is ours. If we lose sight of our victory in Jesus, we cramp up. I just think of a person running, to use the runner example. You cramp up, suffer personal injury, missing out on living 
the gospel reality. Too many people are trying to self-sanctify, and they wonder why they're cramped up. They wonder why their lives are not as the Bible says they should be, or proposes uh, that God promises they will be, and they wonder why things are going so slowly. It's because they're not running freely. It's because they've lost sight of the gospel. Maybe even, uh, as Revelation 3 says, they've lost their first love. And that's why we have to keep getting back to Him. That's why we spent so much time. You notice, even when He taught us the gospel, it wasn't about the forensics. It wasn't about, you know, the, the, the serial the way that he saved us. We didn't even talk about propitiation or reconciliation, not in any depth, right? Um, We didn't talk about those things. We talked about a person. We talked about Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's who we related to, if you recall. And to run freely, we have to get back to him, not to the specifics. There's many specifics. There's things... God's doing in your life right now that you have no idea He's doing. Specifics even. And if you hyperanalyzed everything that He's doing on your behalf, you'd be all cramped up all day all along because you wouldn't be able to figure it all out. How about you just have a relationship, an active one, in Christ Jesus, with Christ Jesus. And then when the Holy Spirit says, hey, listen, get back to Him. Get back to Him. When, when the Holy Spirit convicts you that you're disobeying a command that you know to be true, then cut it out. Confess it and cut it out and get back to Him. When you try to self-sanctify yourself, cut it out. Get back to Jesus. Amen? It's about, it's about your best friend. He's your best friend. What are you going to do? You're going to abandon Him for what? For some self-serving thing? So it's interesting because even when we learn the God, there's many ways to teach the gospel. Um, you can't do it without Jesus Christ front and center. But there's a lot of things to say about the gospel, even the forensics. Um, but he didn't have us in that mode. He spent our time reminding us, this is about a man. This is about a relationship with a person who came out of heaven to become like you and I so that we can relate to him personally, so that he can be a mediator between God and man personally. That's the gospel. That's the good news. And you don't have to be a Ph.D. to realize it. But if you try to be a Ph.D., if you try to be a theologian when you're not, you can get all cramped up. And you lose your freedom. Anybody ever done that? I have. You lose your freedom when you spend all your time in the weeds. You get confused and you're like, what? This is not working. That's because you weren't relating to him. You were relating to doctrines or you were relating to minutiae. You were relating to things that aren't even in the Bible. And yes, I use terms like positional sanctification, experiential sanctification, maybe even ultimate sanctification or glorification, however you'd like to look at it. But listen, positional, experiential, even ultimate sanctification, you show me where those are in the Bible. You know what? They're not there. They're not there. I need you to understand the concepts so we can talk about it. But I'd much rather you spend your time focusing on Jesus Christ, the means in which... That even happens. And that's what he said to us. That's what he taught us. We read 1 John 5 on Sunday in its entirety. Let me give you the first four verses in the Amplified. Up here on the board. 1 John 5, 1 in the Amplified. Everyone who believes with a deep abiding trust in the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed, is born of God, that is, reborn from above, spiritually transformed, renewed, and set apart for His purpose. That's what it means to be sanctified, made holy, set apart. And everyone who loves the Father also loves the child born of Him. By this we know, without any doubt, that we love the children of God, expressing that love when we love God and obey 
his commandments. For the true love of God is this, that we habitually keep his commandments. We're not perfect, we're going to fail, but our desire is, our habit is to keep his commandments and remain focused on his precepts. And his commandments and his precepts are not difficult to obey. For everyone born of God is victorious and overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has conquered and overcome the world. Our continuing persistent faith in Jesus, the Son of God. You realize that that's not an option. And this is why you had me insert, I want to say it was two or three lessons on apostasy. That a true believer cannot lose something that was given to him by God. A true believer cannot lose saving faith. And so that's where John's coming from. He's saying our continuing persistent faith. Well, what makes it that? What gives it the strength to continue and persist? God does. And every perfect gift is from heaven. And there's no variation or shifting shadow. It's not like he gave you saving faith tomorrow and then you get to choose. Well, I don't want it anymore. No, that person that's truly saved will never walk away. Cannot walk away because they've had saving faith persistent imparted to their soul. That's why he had me teach on apostasy. Okay? And that's why we know beyond the shadow of a doubt that he's going to sanctify us. Why? Because he doesn't lose us. That's what Christ says. He's not going to lose anyone. I didn't mistakenly give someone faith and say, oh, I didn't realize you were going to have a change of mind. It doesn't work like that. If you're saved, you're sanctified. So our continuing persistent faith in Jesus, the Son of God. So some of you that are even saved, stop worrying about that fact. Am I saved? Am I saved? No, it's a healthy question to ask, like he had us ask all of us, ourselves. But again, as I taught you, if you're truly saved, you're going to be encouraged every time. That's the beauty of being saved. But don't spend your time in analysis paralysis either. Wondering if you're saved. Wondering if you have the faith. Because if you were convinced then, then guess what? You still have that same faith. It's not going anywhere. So loosen up. Relax. And let it go. And swing away. And enjoy life. There is no fear in love, right? So you shouldn't be afraid. Again, our previous point. Victory in Jesus. The more of the big picture you see, the more free you will be. We run the race freely knowing that victory is ours. If we lose our sight or lose sight of our victory in Jesus, we cramp up, suffer personal injury, missing out on living the gospel reality. So the question again is, why isn't every believer then living this gospel reality? If it's so awesome, why isn't everyone living the gospel reality like the Apostle John says or Paul elsewhere? The short answer is the presence of, of sin in our lives. That's the short answer. We may not be under the sovereignty of sin anymore, but that doesn't mean it isn't still present in our lives. We also have to deal with our enemies, Satan, the world, our flesh, the sources of sin. So the presence of sin is in our lives. We are to identify with a new creature, which cannot sin. Um, But we have a body that's predisposed to sin. Satan and his goonies are around, and the world system is all predisposed to producing sin, to giving birth to sin. So we have to deal with the presence of sin. We're not of the world, but we're in it. Our citizenship's in heaven, so, but we're in the world which means we're in a sewer pipe filled with sin and sin-producing agents. And so we have to deal with sin. That's why we don't just automatically and absolutely purely live the gospel reality. That's why you may have had a bad day today. Why'd you have a bad day today? Sin in your life. Somehow, whether it's something you're sticking to or you know, the world's just giving you all kinds of back pressure with Somehow it got the better of you. 
Maybe you had some mental attitude sins along the way. Whatever it was. That's what keeps you from living the gospel reality day in and day out. So the good news is we find our encouragement in the Word up here on the board. I mean, Paul says the righteous man shall live by faith. The righteous live by faith up here on the board. Faith overcomes the world. We just saw that in 1 John 5, 4. The world is wrought with sin and evil, John 3, 19 and 20 to 21. We'll see that in a moment. However, light always overcomes darkness. That's why we say you turn the lights on, right? Is there such a thing? All right, could I, there's a switch. All right, so that switch is the light switch. Is there another switch over here? I flipped that one and, the, and I, I flipped darkness on. I flipped the darkness on. Is that, does it work that way? No, because that's not how light works. Light always overcomes darkness. Darkness never overcomes light. If light is present, in other words, darkness fails. And that's why that analogy runs throughout the Bible. Light always overcomes darkness. Go to John 3.19. So if you're in the light, and you think about 1 John 1, if you're in the light, you're walking in the light, then you're an overcomer. So technically, you should not be um, downtrodden. You shouldn't buy the lie. John 3.19. This is the judgment that the light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. For everyone who does evil hates the light and does not come to the light for fear that his deeds will be exposed but he who practices the truth comes to the light so that his deeds may be manifested as having been wrought in God. The point is that faith overcomes the world. The world is wrought with sin and evil. However, light always overcomes darkness. And that is our great encouragement that if we stick with God, then we will eventually be matured, sanctified more and more so experientially so that we live that gospel reality. The only thing that's really holding us back is the presence of sin, which is what? In the world. Even this is in the world. A counterfeit shepherd. He is our great shepherd, as the Bible says. However, Satan is a counterfeit shepherd. Satan's desire is to, quote, shepherd you away from living in the freedom that Christ set you free to live in, to set up a counterfeit spiritual life after salvation to propagate a system of self-sanctification. That's what Satan specializes in doing for the sake of believers. Satan's desire is to shepherd you away from living in the freedom that Christ set you free to live in. That's why I've taught you in the past. I use the word, he's the great seducer. Because seducers always look good up front. And then once they have you, lock, stock, and barrel, you find out how rotten they are on the inside. Their core is bad. They look good on the outside, but they're fundamentally bad. That's Satan in a nutshell. That's what a counterfeit shepherd does. A counterfeit shepherd's going to take you not to green pastures. You're going to go with the counterfeit shepherd and starve and be emaciated and be spiritually depleted because for some time you follow the counterfeit shepherd. You follow the world's ways. And you wonder why you're starving. You wonder why your life is in a bit of a disarray, why you don't have all those wonderful promises you read about in the Bible yet. Well, that's how Satan bags believers. He's a seducer. So his desire is to shepherd you away from living in the freedom that Christ set you free to live in, to set up a counterfeit spiritual life after salvation, to propagate a system of self-sanctification. <clears throat> I was reflecting on that point before class. I believe that people don't want to truly, deeply consider the vast array of tactics that Satan has employed in their lives. I believe that. That people don't want to. Now concentrate. 
they sort of categorize away certain areas of their lives as sort of, that's untouchable, or it's impossible that that area of my life is actually going to be infiltrated by Satan and his tactics. And I believe people do it all the time. I catch myself doing it all the time. I'm not, in other words, I think I'm smart enough to know to outsmart Satan always, and I'm not. I'm constantly looking maybe on the front line and on the flanks, but not behind me. Or I'm constantly looking behind me, and sometimes he hit me straight on. I'm constantly saying, well, I don't have to look to my right flank because that's my best buddy over here. They would never betray me. They would never introduce darkness into my life. And we sort of make a habit of not investigating or not at least having a healthy suspicion of all sides. Thinking that we're smart enough to do that thing. But we're not. And I think that it takes a lot of work and maybe even a little mm, risking a little insecurity along the way to turn over stones that you haven't turned over in a while. So people sort of categorize away certain areas of their lives as untouchable or impossible to be infiltrated. But knowing this, Satan focuses all the more on those very areas because the resistance in your life is lowest. For example, family, as we've studied recently. Family. Why did he spend so much time on family? You know why? Because Satan does a bang-up job ruining lives and destroying unity, even in the faith, because nobody's looking at the family. That's one of those areas like, oh, come on, we're so tight, that could never happen. (laughs) What happened? But then it's too late. For whatever reason, people seem to perceive their homes as some kind of a safe haven or a refuge from satanic attacks. Yet, there they sit, watching evil movies together and TV shows that exploit family values, undermine the authority structure in the family, and laugh off things like sex outside of marriage as if it's merely an alternative lifestyle choice. And there those same people spend their time idolizing each other, mothers idolizing their kids, fathers their sport heroes, kids their parents even. And the Apostle John is in the deepest recesses of their souls, screaming, 1 John 5.21, little children, Guard yourselves from idols. Guard yourselves from idols. Let me see if I can drive this home a little bit further for you. As an example, fictitious example, but I'm sure some of you can relate. Maybe personally, I don't know. It's not my business. Maybe not. A guy comes home from work and smacks his girl's tush and makes some lewd comment to his live-in girlfriend in front of the illegitimate child. The kid thinks, God must be okay with my parents not being married and talking dirty in front of me, whatever that means. The kid idolizes his father, so he says to him, Dad, I want to be like you when I grow up. The father grins, but before he can answer, the mother interrupts their moment with, Honey, you can do a lot better than your father. Heck, he can't even keep your mommy happy. The father grabs a beer from the fridge, turns on Monday night football, and continues with the indoctrination of his young son into the grip of the National Football League, While the little boy stares up at his idol, the father stares at the TV, idolizing the star quarterback 
from his favorite football team. Meanwhile, the mom is already upstairs trading her around-the-house clothes for a miniskirt, fully intending on going back to her favorite pool bar and hooking up with her old high school flame, who, by the way, she met up recently with on Facebook. She looks one last time in the mirror and at the little wallet-sized glamour shot photo of her before she put on her baby weight. She idolizes herself and wishes she could look like that again. Oh well, she mutters, at least my old flame still thinks I'm hot. Three idols, among many more identifiable ones if we spend just a little more time analyzing that home. The boy idolizes the defunct father. The father idolizes the NFL superstar. The mother idolizes herself from a previous era. And nobody's thinking about Jesus Christ. Nobody's thinking about Jesus Christ. Hmm. So ask yourselves, is this an uncommon scene in our country nowadays? No, it is not, sadly. Normal? Really? And every single one of you listening right now, think about, you might not be the father, the wife, or the, excuse me, not the wife, the woman or the kid in that situation. You may have a girlfriend, a spouse, maybe, Kids, little brother, little sister, cousins, uh, I don't know, you name it. But we all have, quote, family. And Satan's very smart. Normal, really? Be careful what you accept into your soul as normal or acceptable. Where does... Where do people find their normal anyways? Where does it begin? Home. That's why so many, unfortunately, so many women marry jerks because their fathers were jerks. They say, that was normal. This is how men are. I'm going to marry another jerk because that's what my father was, a jerk. Men married ridiculous Women. Why? Because their mom was a ridiculous woman. That was normal. You understand? That's all because of a family. And then dysfunction just rolls on like a snowball. Satan's very smart. So you have to be very careful what you're accepting in your family as normal in what you're projecting for others to see as normal. What those closest to you might be trying to pawn off as okay might quite or may quite possibly be heinous to God. 2 Corinthians 11, 13 to 15. We'll get to that in a moment. Satan propagates a world system viewpoint that proclaims it is light when it is very much darkness. Go to 2 Corinthians 11.13. 2 Corinthians 11.13. So be careful what you accept and what you project as normal. Because you may be accepting garbage and you may even be projecting garbage in hurting someone else's life. And all the while, Satan's laughing and he's projecting as, yeah, it's normal, therefore it's light. It's totally normal, therefore it's light. I mean, how many people, let's face it, if we went out to the mall right now and said, without all the weird dysfunction going on, if I described that, quote, contemporary family thing, most people at the mall would be like, that's totally normal. Nowadays, so it's okay. And God's like, it's not okay. It's not okay at all. 
I didn't form the infrastructure that way. That's not the family. But Satan has got everybody under the viewpoint that accepting such things as normal. So be careful. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. For such men are false apostles, people that teach such things, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. Here's the message version of that same passage up here on the board. 2 Corinthians eleven thirteen. There are sorry bunch, pseudo-apostles, lying preachers, crooked workers, posing as Christ's agents, but sham to the core. And no wonder, remember, everyone here has, a, has their own virtual pulpit. So if you're teaching something as okay or normal, as light, then you too are a sham. Satan does it all the time, dressing up as a beautiful angel of light. So it shouldn't surprise us when his servants masquerade as servants of God. But they're not getting by with anything. They'll pay for it in the end. And that's a promise from God. So that's the point that, you know, the false shepherd, the counterfeit shepherd takes people away with the idea that it's normal. There's a certain attractiveness to the flesh that makes it, quote, acceptable or normal. But what you have to realize, and I'm I'm teaching believers right now, presumably, is that you don't get away with anything. You may think you're getting away with it for a time, but you do not get away with it forever. The point again is up here on the board. Counterfeit shepherds. Satan has counterfeit shepherds planted throughout the world, and they do his bidding with the perceived sanctity of Christianity, from behind pulpits even. Allah, 2 Timothy 3, 6 to 7. They go right into household. They don't have any scruples. John 10, 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Satan is a liar. He has always been a liar. Go to John 8, 44. John 8, 44. So again, we're still amplifying the higher level picture there, which is, why doesn't everybody enjoy the gospel reality? Because the thief comes to destroy, you see. Satan's got a whole strategy to take believers with him for a time. He can't snatch them out of Christ's hand, but he can certainly add a little back pressure, create a little disruption in God's will for your life. And you have a free will, so you can't become the weak woman either. John 8, 44. You are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. That's Satan, my friends. And he has really no other intention for you than to derail you, to frustrate God's will in your life. God's will is his highest and best, right? God has things in store for you. You can't even, you've never heard, you've never seen. You can't even imagine. They're beyond your dreams even. And Satan's like, but I'd rather seduce you over here with this whatever. Satan lies wanting you to believe that while you might be saved, your sanctification is your good work. Up here on the board. Sanctification is a fundamental facet of the gospel. We don't just live in the past simply pointing to our positional sanctification. We live in the now, obeying such that he can sanctify us experientially. Philippians 2. Excuse me, 12 to 13. 
Go to Philippians 2.12. Philippians 2.12. So sanctification, what the Spirit's trying to impart to your soul is to live the gospel reality, you have to understand that sanctification is actually part of the gospel. See, Satan lies to you and says it's not. He said, oh, no, no, that's a different thing. You might be saved, but now this other sanctification, this experiential sanctification, that's a totally separate issue. It's a totally separate issue. And it's not a totally separate issue. That is a lie. It's not a separate issue. It's the same issue. And God doesn't fail. Once he's got you, Satan can't snatch you out of his hand. The only thing we do is we buy the lie and we follow some counterfeit shepherd into the wilderness. That's what happens. And that's why we don't buy this lie, any of these lies. And I hate to say it, but that that little weird family example is a proper good place to look at life. Because that's what most people grow up in now, it seems like. It's some kind of dysfunctional, messed up, screwed up family. Philippians 2.12 So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. So again, obey, work out, it's God who's at work. You see that? Your job is to obey. When you talk about work out your own salvation, listen, the only thing you've got, the thing you've got to your name is your free will. That's what it means. You have the ability to obey, and the humble person obeys. So we talk about work out your salvation up here on the board. <clears throat> Paul is speaking to believers, so it's not about, you know, salvation proper. Refers to your deliverance. That's salvation is often translated or perceived or um, translated as deliverance, I guess, understood as deliverance. Uh, Paul is speaking to believers, refers to your deliverance, your sanctification. Obedience is being amplified here, the Holy Spirit's ministry implied, of course, and all the work we did with the Holy Spirit to be filled with the Spirit, that's essentially listening to His convicting ministry in your life. And He's never going to get you to, He's never going to motivate you to do anything but obey God's commands. Beginning with love. I mean, how much love is there in our little example there when each person is idolizing? The only one that's probably somewhat innocent is the kid. But how much love is going on between those two parents? Where's the love? The love is for self, frankly. So work out your salvation. Paul is speaking of believers, refers to your deliverance, your sanctification, obedience is being amplified here. Up here on the board, if sanctification is the end goal, and it is, then obedience is the manward side of it. If you don't obey, he won't sanctify you. It's that simple. But a believer has a what? Obedient heart. If you don't obey, he won't sanctify you. But a believer has an obedient heart. So, numero uno, if you never obey and you don't have any intention of obeying, you're probably not a believer, so that throws you out. What keeps you from not obeying moving forward? To the degree you disobey, to that degree your sanctification is stunted. What keeps you from obeying? The presence of sin. That's all the Spirit's saying. If sanctification is the end goal, and it is, then obedience is the manward side of it. Your job, then, is to obey. Now, I could sit here and, you know, pound the pulpit, and if Bill and Lois are here, they'd be going, yeah, yeah, obey, authority, yeah, that's what they love. For good reason. Look at their lives. Well-sanctified older individuals. They're perfect models for all of us to look at. Not the only ones, but wonderful models. And they love the word obey. Love it. 
Love any time I teach on authority orientation. Love it. Why? Because they know the secret. <laughs> they know the secret of letting go of self-sanctification and living in the grace of God, which is humbly obeying His commands. First and foremost, get your butt in the seat. Because so you can find out what the commands are, right? So you can learn and relearn and revisit the commands themselves, which means you have to be in the seat. Or if you can't be in the seat for some viable reason, then you're catching up with the lessons. Whatever grace he's throwing at you, your first order of obedience is to take it, is to receive it. I taught a whole series on what it means to receive grace. And that's where I'm pretty sure the phrase, the key to the spiritual life is humility, came about as almost our local vernacular. The key to the spiritual life is humility. The humble person obeys. Obedience implies you depend upon His grace to sanctify you, which also implies that you abide in His commands. Let me put it this way. If an airplane pilot says, I prefer to push the yoke forward to take off rather than pull back. It doesn't matter how much speed they achieve going down the runway, they will never take flight. But that's the gist of self-sanctification, isn't it? I'm going to do it my way. But you're never going to take off. You're always going to stay on the ground. And there's so much more to see. So much more freedom once you're off the ground. Only God can sanctify man. That's really what he's saying. If you lose sight of the gospel, you will doubt this basic truth and adopt a form of self-sanctification eventually. You lose sight of the gospel. Which is the greater work. Saving you is a greater work than sanctifying you after you're saved. That work's already done. So why would you turn back to yourself? That's Galatians 3.3. Why would you turn back to any other power source, dunamis, than the one that saved you? Because you're seduced away, essentially. Some might say, I I didn't even know what's happening. Yeah, because you were too busy watching the batting eyelashes of Satan in the cosmic system. You were too busy being entranced. You were too busy idolizing someone or something in your life, and you got led away like a weak woman, captivated. That's how it happens. And it begins with the proper gospel seated in your soul. It's from faith to faith. The gospel is the very power of salvation. Salvation, you're saved every day. You're delivered every day. That's why I call it the gospel reality. It's the power of salvation. That's the gospel, the good news. The explosive power of God in your life. The presence of God's power in your life is that great power struggle with the presence of sin in your life. One's light, one's darkness. One's true shepherd, one's counterfeit shepherd. And they battle every day. And your soul is ground zero. And the only thing you have to say about it all is your own free will decisions. And the Holy Spirit saying, I'm right here with you the whole way. Don't let them scare you. I'm right here with you the whole way. You know the right thing to do. Choose God. Choose God. If I go back to the Old Testament, choose God and what? And live. Choose God. Choose God. Choose for God. But the world says it's okay to do this thing. The world says it's okay to ignore certain commands from God. Therefore, those must not count for me. You see, because I'm in love. I'm in love. (laughs) I'm in love. So those commands about family and marriage and the institution of marriage, they don't apply to me. I'm in love. 
And that's what the world will tell you. As long as you're in love. No. No. I'm sorry. Only God can sanctify man. If you lose sight of the gospel, you will doubt this basic truth and adopt a form of self sanctification eventually. You'll, bo- you'll follow some lie that says, I know what the scripture says about the promises of God and happiness and peace and contentment. i got to go that way. But you see, that looks like a long distance road. And I'm into short, you know, now stuff. I want, I want, it, I want it now. So Satan's offering me this thing. He says, I can have happiness in one step. If I just ignore God, I just pretend it's not there. I can have happiness, pseudo-happiness, counterfeit happiness, happy that's going to dry you up like a shriveled prune eventually. I'm going to take it in Satan's direction. Satan says, I can have it just right there. He says, here it is, right here. And it's a big old trap. That's self-sanctification. What do you, when you think of God, think of it this way. When you hear the word of God, when you hear even a, a pastor teach, God wants to sanctify you. He has his highest and best. He has his very best in store for you. But what's the first, you're like, oh man, that means happiness most likely. That means I get to be, I get to live a happy life. Amen? I mean, when you think of sanctification, you don't think God's going to be like, hey, I'm going to sanctify you. You're going to be this miserable crank. No, I'm going to sanctify you. You may not have the same happiness that you read about romance novels that might be a counterfeit type of happiness altogether but you're going to have a happiness that you can't even dream of yet is that fair to say about sanctification most people right i mean think of ultimate sanctification that's where we're headed say or, uh, heaven's going to be frankly orgasmic 24 7 you understand it's going to be mind-blowing the entire time so of course sanctification the end goal of sanctification is unfettered joy and exuberation and however you'd like to look at that. So the lie is that Satan says, I'll give that to you right now. Ignore the commands of God. I'll give that to you right now. As soon as you choose his method, you are going down the path of self-sanctification because your intention is to find that happiness down another pathway. Ignoring the commands of God. That's called self-sanctification at a practical level. See, it's, it's easy to go, oh yeah, self-sanctification. God's going to make me holy. And academic, make it academic and then write it off and put it on a shelf. No, how about making it real? How about all these promises? Those are the end goals. And when you take a step towards that end goal by ignoring a command of God, you, my friend, are self-sanctifying. That's what he's teaching you. It's very practical. It's not just academic. Does that make sense? Yeah. Hey, Scott, we're not going to make it Romans 4 again. Romans 4, we didn't make it again. We got even further from Romans 4. There's got to be something going on in Romans 4. But I'm out of time. And this must be the last thing he wants you to see in your soul before I close up again. Only God can sanctify man. Here's my challenge for you. I'm as your shepherd. Go home tonight and ask yourself, what does sanctification mean to me? When I think of the word sanctify, what does it mean to me? And really think about the practical ties to your life. In other words, when you think about God sanctifying you, what does that mean at work? What does that mean at home? What does that mean in your relationships? What does that mean with your possessions? What does that mean with other things you might call blessings? What does sanctification mean to you at a very practical level? Ask yourself that question. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads.
Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege of studying your word here this evening. We ask for your blessings as we take what we've learned out to a lost and dying world, Father, that needs it so desperately. We ask these things in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.